If you're not familiar with The Onion, they are a digital media company that satirizes the news in the form of news. Well, fake news, that is. They are openly satirical and never seriously try to pass things off as the real news. Their website, by all accounts except for the actual word they use, resembles every typical news website. A big logo on the top, tabs of various categories of news running below the logo, clickbait headlines and pictures grouped in squares and rectangles meant to mimic the front page of a newspaper. The tongue-in-cheek tagline of The Onion is unabashedly America's finest news source, but a look at their headlines soon revealed their satirical nature. For example, Kittens thinks nothing but murder all day. New initiative decreased stigma against homeless by making majority of people homeless. Zoo assures public escaped a leopard will kill them quickly. But satire is not just used for laugh, it is also a tool for critique. Often the onion will produce headlines so accurately exposing the absurdity of our real world that as a reader, you can't help feeling a bit sad. On the 27th of May, 2014, The Onion published an article that became a force of its own. It was the first Onion headline that became a running series. Every installment became more meaningful than the last. The message became powerful enough to break through mainstream media like the New York Times and the Washington Post. It even has its own Wikipedia entry. The subject of the article, Mass Shootings. This is Everything is Public Health, a show about all the forces around us that impact our health. America is a country of perpetual tragedies. With news of mass shootings occurring on a regular, albeit sporadic basis, every event slips closer and closer to a statistic. But we must not forget that each event is a horrifying experience, each shooting a major tragedy. And what makes a tragedy a tragedy? What takes an event from simple sadness to gut-wrenching despair? Ask any playwright, the equation is very simple. A tragedy becomes a devastation when it could have been prevented. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. If a tragedy was unavoidable or inevitable in some way, as in it was completely out of anyone's control, it is still a tragedy, right? But the emotions would be very different if the tragedy could have been prevented. Like if there were signs along the way that were ignored or if the event would have never happened and a few people did the right thing or if the event was a product of the very system that we've built, suddenly you get additional emotions of rage, despair, and bitterness. Those emotions becomes much more intense if we knew that a tragedy could have been prevented in some way. Absolutely. We think about the term accident right? It implies that we didn't know it was going to happen or some freak action took place that everybody was caught off guard. But in many instances, when we think broadly about injury prevention, we know that injuries are often not accidents. They are predictable and preventable. There are things that we know increase the risk or likelihood that something might happen. And so if you're in a situation where you've been impacted by something that was suspected might have happened or could have been predicted and possibly prevented, that can lead people to be far more upset about something or at least additional emotions, right? Not to negate anyone's feelings. You might have additional feelings of like, why didn't we prevent this when we knew it was a possibility? Yeah, it's definitely a more complicated emotions if something was preventable. The Onion article is published on the 27th of May, 2014, and it was titled No Way to Prevent This, says the only nation where this regularly happens, 
It comes four days after the Isla Vista or Santa Barbara shooting since it occurred near the UC Santa Barbara campus. Since then, this article with the same identical headline has been published 19 more times, each shortly following a mass shooting incident. Do you know this Onion article? Yeah, I'm aware of this article being someone who studies gun violence prevention. Not only did I come across it myself, but it was sort of shared with me multiple times. And each time I see it, you know, it working in gun violence prevention is a really, really hard field to work in because yeah. we know there are things that we can do to reduce the likelihood, reduce the burden. And as a scientist, as a researcher, I want people to know what those things are and to put them into place to keep everyone safer. And it's disheartening when we see a mass shooting. And I like the onion, you know, they mock things and and it's fun. But to see it show up again and again and again, this is just the same article again and again and again, just highlights the sense of futility that we get sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's what makes this piece of satire so powerful because every time it just slaps you in the face again, it's like, hey, we keep saying that this is unpreventable, but it keeps happening. And I think it's in terms of all on your articles is definitely one of my favorite pieces because it's so powerful, given that it's posted identically multiple times after a mass shooting. And we're going to return to the first time this Onion article was published and the event that preceded it, which is the Isla Vista or Santa Barbara killings. We're extremely lucky and honored to be joined by Dr. Shannon Frateroli. She's a professor and the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Injury Research and Policy. She's also a core faculty in our Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy. Dr. Frateroli is going to talk about this event and the policy tool that can help prevent similar tragedies like this in the future. So the Santa Barbara shooting, which now is a couple of years old, began at least based on my reading of case documents and and media reports, began when a young man was communicating and writing and posting things that were um, troubling to his family. And in particular, his parents, you know, grew concerned about the thoughts that he was having, grew concerned about sort of how he might be at risk of committing violence. So Dr. Fadroli is being very PG-13 here. Like the things that this perpetrator wrote, recorded and posted on social media were horrifying and disgusting and extreme to say the least. Like I don't know how to say this, but this guy wrote some really racist and misogynistic things. Like he wrote a manifesto. And, you know, I just wanted to emphasize that she's being you know, very mild in her description of what the perpetrator was doing. And I think this is a really important point that a lot of folks don't know about the preventability of mass shootings in particular. It's that there's often a thing that we call leakage where the perpetrator or potential perpetrator is leaking their thoughts about committing this act or sharing information that they're thinking about harming others out either to people, they're telling people about it, they're publishing things online. Um, and, And this is not a unique thing for this incident. This happens frequently where people start to sense there might be something going on here, even so far as somebody saying, I'm going to do X thing at Y location. Very explicit. Very, very specific. And unfortunately, until very recently, that A, hasn't always been taken seriously. And B, we haven't had a tool to address that kind of leakage when someone is actively talking about ideas of harming themselves or others. Yeah. And it's a theme that we'll definitely return to when we talk about gun violence in this country. And so they did a couple of things, which actually I think are are quite 
powerful and no doubt difficult things for people in that situation to do. They first reached out to their son's mental health provider and said, look, we're concerned about what we're hearing, what we're seeing from our son. We just want to raise this with you. Can you, you know, look, be on the lookout sort of in your interactions for him if there's any, any additional intervention that's needed? They also, their son was at the time away at college and um, living a few hundred miles away from them. So they reached out to the local sheriff's office in the community where he was living and essentially said the same thing that they did to his therapist, which is, we're concerned about our son. He's doing X, Y, and Z. This is atypical behavior for him. We're really concerned that he may do something that he regrets, that we regret, that results in death and mayhem. And we want to alert you to that and ask if you can in some way help. The sheriff's office in this community um, responded again in a way that I think we would all say is the way that we would want our law enforcement to respond. They took the call, they listened to the parents, and they went and um, visited their son, um, visited the parent's son. They did, you know, sort of a well check to see if anything was out of order, to see if any, if the son needed help. And they concluded that you know, no crime had been committed, that there wasn't anything that was going on that would constitute an offense that would allow for their intervention, right? Because if we think about the job of law enforcement um, and the orientation of law enforcement, it's really about responding when events happen, right? It's, it's solving crimes, it's responding to crimes, and no crime had been committed at this point. So, um, mom and dad did their job, you know, the therapist involved did their job, the sheriff's county, from my perspective, did their job. And yet, in the days and weeks that would follow, what unfolded was an event that all of the people involved probably weren't surprised happened. They may have been surprised by sort of the extent of the violence, but everybody sort of close to this individual was on alert that they were in crisis, that something was wrong, that they were communicating in ways that clearly indicated that they were contemplating violence and really at imminent risk for committing violence, which is what ultimately happened. And many people died as a result of those thoughts and actions coming to fruition. What if there was a way for the people who saw these signs to act? What if there was something that that's within the law that they can do to prevent a tragedy like this. And this is the policy tool that we alluded to earlier, which is called ERPO, which stands for... Extreme Risk Protection Order. And what does an ERPO do? So an Extreme Risk Protection Order is a civil tool that allows law enforcement, family members, and in a few states as well, healthcare providers to petition the court to temporarily separate someone from their firearms and prohibit them from buying more for the duration of the order. I think one of the best things about ERPO is that they are temporary, right? So it's a, a short-term thing. So when the crisis passes or the elevated risk passes, someone can get their firearms back if they want. It can also be extended if that risk remains, right? So it doesn't just sort of automatically lapse. There's an opportunity to extend it. So think about it almost in the same way as a domestic violence restraining order. 
someone goes to court, they provide evidence that the person who would be subject to the ERPO is at imminent risk of harming themselves or others, that there is a credible threat, and the judge reviews that evidence and then determines whether an order should be issued or not. So it's a way to look at a situation where a person is at risk of either harming themselves or someone else and intervene in a way that can temporarily remove firearms before that violence happens. Thinking about the parallel with the domestic violence restraining order, this is not a new mechanism. The courts have these systems in place. Law enforcement and judges are used to hearing these kinds of cases where someone has to articulate the harm and the risk. And what we're seeing is that this can be an effective tool if we think about the context of mass shootings when there's leakage, when someone is sharing that they are thinking about harming a location, harming people, committing an act of mass violence, then the judge could rule on that. There might be a temporary order in the short term until there can be a hearing But contrary to what you might hear about ERPOs in the media, it's not something that's handed out willy-nilly. There is due process exactly in the same way of a domestic violence restraining order. Right. These policies in most places, most states are relatively new, but we do have some evidence that these can be effective. And I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Frateroli. And when we look at the evidence evaluations that have been done with regard to domestic violence restraining orders that have that firearm provision. Some context. We talked earlier about domestic violence restraining orders. There's a box that judges can check saying, you know, this person can't have firearms. What we see are statistically significant associations between states that have that provision of the law, so allow courts to remove firearms, and reductions in intimate partner homicides generally and intimate partner gun homicides in particular. So we know that based on our experience with domestic violence restraining orders, we have a system and infrastructure in place that has existed for decades that allows for these processes to happen through civil courts. And in developing the ERPO policies, we really kind of look to that legal basis, the due process protections that are in place with domestic violence restraining orders, and just really expanded those authorities to include other dangerous situations and other threats of violence, in addition to those that are included under the domestic violence restraining order laws. So expanding to include, again, when people are threatening suicide, so there's a risk of self-harm, or when people are threatening violence against others that aren't intimate partners, but might be a coworker or a group of people, someone that they've encountered on the street. So it's a broadening of an authority that, again, has been tested and tried and found to pass constitutional muster that we have in the extreme risk protection order. You know, I will say that in addition, and despite the fact that we, um, that ERPO is very much built on an existing framework of domestic violence protection orders, there have been cases where that authority has been challenged. And in every case to date, the court has upheld the ability to exercise this power. So it, these state laws have been shown to be um, appropriate, constitutional, and within sort of the bounds of um, legal authority for the protection of public safety and good. In addition to introducing 
one of the Onion's most widely read articles, also created opportunity for the California state legislature to introduce and pass the ERPO within the state within a relatively short amount of time. Whether the Onion article contributed to this bill's passing is unclear, but they essentially had it ready to go. They were waiting for an opportunity to introduce it and to give it the biggest chance of being passed. And I find this particularly like very sad because public health is about preventing tragedies, but it's oftentimes that we have to wait until a tragedy to happen in order for the things that we wanted to do to get passed into law and then actively used. When we think about a policy window, you need a policy, you need political will, yeah, and sort of you need often some catalyzing event that will open that window so that you can get the policy through. And yes, it's terrible that such a tragedy had to occur, but it's impressive that folks had been thinking about this issue. That's true. And were ready to respond to it. The Consortium for Risk-Based Firearm Policy is the organization that really led the development of ERPO policies. If you think back to the micro-stamping episode with Josh Horowitz, he was part of a group that convened after the Sandy Hook shooting. So our university in January of 2013 pulled together a summit, brought together researchers, mental health advocates and experts, people with lived experiences. And there was a really open, honest and frank conversation among these folks. And what became apparent to everyone involved was that we needed risk based firearm prohibitions. So one thing that's really important about ERPOs or extreme risk protection orders, they don't take into account mental illness. You don't have to have a mental health issue in order to be given an ERPO. They can happen independent of that. And so this policy was crafted ready to go, which was based on risky behaviors such that when this incident occurred, policymakers were teed up with this policy ready to go to try to improve safety. The Santa Barbara shooting is a powerful example, and it was an example that had a powerful effect on law. From an ERPO perspective, is a very compelling case of the need for a tool to intervene early in that trajectory, right? So when mom and dad, when people who are close to someone are saying, we are hearing sort of cries for help, We are hearing threats of future violence. We are seeing our loved one act and behave in ways that clearly indicate that he or she or they are in crisis and in need of help. And while we get them that help, it's just not a good idea for them to have ready access to firearms. And essentially what ERPO does is it puts a tool in the hands of those parents, of that therapist, of those sheriffs to say, you know what, let's not take any chances here. Something's not right. This person is communicating that they are contemplating violence, um, that there are indicators that they need, need help. Let's intervene with the court's authority and just take guns out of the mix while we figure this out. We're seeing this, you know, we're talking about the context of mass shootings and this particular incident, but we're also seeing it used sometimes in the context of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. It's been used often in suicide as well, where a person is at risk of harming themselves, not necessarily harming others as well. And we know that suicidality and suicidal actions can be very impulsive and firearms are exceptionally lethal. You can separate someone from that extremely lethal means, even if they were to substitute to something else, they're far more likely to survive. And so ERPO 
you know, we often think about them in the context of preventing mass shootings or mass violence, but they have a very broad reach for multiple forms of violence. And I see them as a really excellent complement to policies such as permit to purchase or purchaser licensing, stronger background check laws, right? Making sure people who shouldn't have guns don't get them in the first place, and then temporarily separating people from their firearms if they're too risky to own them for a short period of time. Yeah. Almost seven years after the Isla Vista killing, the federal version of the ERPO was introduced in Congress in 2021, the latest in a series of pushes to get this model on the federal level. We hope to see it become law later rather than never. I think another important point, in addition to the federal law, the Justice Department issued model legislation for state. We're talking in September of 2021 here. And as of this recording, we have 19 states and the District of Columbia that have ERPO laws on the books. I think folks have recognized, and we've talked about before, inaction at the federal level doesn't mean we can't do anything. We can still see action at the state level, and more states are considering passing these policies as well. And hopefully, Hopefully, we can get to a point where we have many of these tools in place so we can prevent these tragedies from happening. And ERPO is just a tool. It's not a perfect tool, but it's like in public health, it's about layers. It's about providing multiple tools so you can address a problem from multiple perspectives, not just having, here's one solution that will work 100% of the time. We discussed earlier how we're both very tired of the narrative of, oh, this doesn't work all the time, that we shouldn't use it at all. I think that's a narrative that needs to go away. Like just because some people may not find this particular thing helpful doesn't mean that this entire thing should be thrown out. Right. No one thing is going to solve all forms of gun violence or gun-related deaths. We need a set of tools that address different aspects. I think the other important thing is even in states where they may not have an ERPO yet, law enforcement and others are taking far more seriously leakage and other sort of credible threats. Mm, as they should. Vermont, for example, several years ago, there was a high school student in Vermont who was talking about harming others, doing a school shooting, and he had made comments to some classmates. They called the police, they sort of worked with the students, and that was prevented. And so I think it's really important that if you see something, say something right. so that you can try to keep something from happening. So we hope that you learned something new today about the extreme risk protection order and how hopefully it can help The Onion stop posting the same article all the time. For more of our discussion on this topic, be sure to tune in to the show after the show, Public Health Plus, next Monday, where we will be discussing the Oxford High School shooting in Detroit. That's what ERPO does. That hole in the prior system and in the system in, in many states is what ultimately was compelling to not just lawmakers, but also to the family members of survivors of that incident, to the family members of people in that community, and to, you know, all stakeholders in the process who witnessed, you know, yet another mass event unfold in this country. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krifasi. And if you want to see any of my delicious gluten-free baking creations or my adorable dog, Penny, you can follow me on Instagram at CassPhD. Please also give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It does help the show immensely. If you want to support the show directly, we have a Patreon page and you can find the link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.